Well, good morning again. I'm glad that you're here this morning as we open God's Word together uh, on this Easter morning. Uh, at Bethany Church, we believe that God speaks in His Word and that when we open His Word, God speaks to us, so we get to do that now together. It's a great privilege to be able to open the Word of God and hear Him speak to us and through His Word as we sit under it. Peter, the Apostle Peter, Peter was a leader among leaders, a leader amongst the disciples. He was the great apostle who proclaimed to Jesus these words, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter said that. He was the one who said to Jesus, even if everyone should lose faith, I never will. And yet we know Peter betrayed the Lord three times when he said, Woman, I do not know him. I don't know him. He denied knowing Jesus. The one who who called him, discipled him, and who was now going to die for him on the cross. And so this morning we enter into Peter's first sermon, recorded in the book of Acts. His first sermon on that day that they call that we call Pentecost, when God poured out the power of of the Holy Spirit, and 3,000 people were saved. That's a big group. That's a lot of people. And Peter spoke on that day with a bold certainty about Jesus on that day. He risked by standing up and saying these things. He spoke with an assurance on that day that wasn't there on the night of Jesus' arrest when he said, woman, I do not know him. I'm sure on the eve of Jesus' death, he felt like things were in chaos or on the eve of his arrest. His betrayal, you might even say, Peter's is understandable. It looked like things were falling apart. There was fear of imprisonment himself, fear of death. Well, what changed? What took him? What took Peter from the chaos of that night? Probably feeling things were out of control, Things we'd lost, we'd lost the reins on this thing. It's unraveling to this bold certainty that Jesus is Lord and Savior and make him willing to stand before thousands and preach. What happened? This man was cowering a couple nights ago. And how about you today? Do you believe that Jesus is the living, living, you can't see him, but living Lord? Messiah. And in those moments of heart where where you think, is God here? Is God even working right now? Or is He working at all? Is there any sense to this? Who's in control of this thing? I've lost the reins. It's unraveling. Who's in control? Do you ever feel like this guy in some of those pictures you see from the stock exchange floor in New York City? The guy in the middle there? He's in trouble. Who's in control here? This is out of control. Things are pressing in upon me. Do you ever feel disillusioned? Or how about on a personal level when you look at your own life? Where do you find hope? What gets you out of bed in the morning? What makes you wake up and rise and start a new day and and get out of bed? What is it? Do you know the One who gives hope? Christ. Do you know the freedom of knowing Jesus today or you feel trapped in bondage? What could make a man like Peter? 
who denied Jesus stand up and proclaim the great Gospel story a few weeks later. The resurrection of Christ. That's it. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the joy of the Gospel story. That's what we're here about today. And every Sunday, really. And this morning, we're going to find it. We're going to find the story through Peter's sermon at Pentecost through three crucial events, really. Three crucial events. We're going to find that Gospel story. So grab your outline. Have your Bibles open to that Acts 2 passage as we take a look at some of Peter's thoughts on that day of Pentecost. Look, take a look at verse 22 there. Oh, he starts here. He just kind of says, he just kind of throws it out there. Men of Israel, you've you got to hear this. You've got to hear these words. Listen. Jesus of Nazareth. And he just says his name. You've got to hear this. Jesus of Nazareth. The one who did these mighty works, he says to him, you know about the works. The one who caused the blind to see, raised the dead. You've lived. You, you were in, you're in our town. You know what's happened. He says, let me tell you his story. Let me tell you his story. It's where he starts. We have to start there. It's where he finishes. We're going to finish there. Jesus of Nazareth. It was found in Jesus' death. The Gospel story is found in Jesus' death. Listen to verse 23 there. He says, this Jesus, the one that did all these works, you know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, he says. And just to make sure that they understand they understand it, he ends the section in verse 36 there. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. He's indicting those that were standing there, both Jews and Romans, who carried it out right there. Probably were some in that crowd that were part of it. Maybe some that even pounded the nails or raised the cross up right there in that crowd that day. But did you catch that there? Peter doesn't say, well, he was delivered up by Judas. He was, but he didn't say that. He says, by God's definite plan and foreknowledge. Don't miss that there. We can't miss that. That Jesus' death, it was so far from God's plan in Peter's mind, wasn't it? You're going to die, Lord? No, far be it from you. No way. It was so far in Peter's mind. And now he says, it was God's plan. It was God's plan. In fact, it was always God's plan. It's the story of the Gospel. It's, it's the good news. God planned Jesus' death. God the Father planned Jesus' death. What we have there is sort of a strange kind of paradox. He just said to those men, you carried it out. You did it, on the one hand. But then he says, well, God planned it. He, he, he providentially ordained it. It's sort of this paradox that God ordains all things, and yet He's responsible. Men and women are responsible for carrying some of those things out. Even the crucifixion, He says, you did this, He told them. It's sort of a big word, but it's something we call concurrence. 
Just that two things can happen at the same time, the Bible teaches. God can ordain that all things happen, and yet men and women carry them out and are responsible for them. It's the paradox of the Bible, but that's what Peter is teaching here. That's what he's saying. But here, when Peter says it, he has a reason. He's got a purpose. It's to help the Jews who would have stumbled over the idea of saying these two words together. Crucified, Christ. Crucified, Messiah. Those two words to them would have been an, an oxymoron like jumbo shrimp. Right? <laughs> or hot ice. You know, that they, Crucified, Messiah. Doesn't work in their mind. It just doesn't work. It didn't make sense. Kind of like, uh, you know, like God in a body didn't make sense to them. It didn't make sense. But then you say, God, not only in a body, but a body that would die? That was just so far from what they could handle. And Peter's telling them, it wasn't a mistake. It wasn't a slip-up. Things didn't just unravel here. It was the eternal plan of God, is what Peter's saying. What looked like a stunning defeat was an absolute brilliant victory on the cross. That's what was happening when sin and death were defeated. And here's what that means for us. Comfort. That's comfort. If God could take the most evil act done by humans, the devastating abuse and murder of His Son, and ordain and plan history to its certainty and use it for our victory, can He not use every detail of your life then? Even the hard stuff. I know it's hard to see. I know it doesn't feel like it when you're in the middle of it. And is it also not certain that He is in control if He could cause this to happen? And will He not only use the big things, but also the little things in your life for your good too? And if that's the case, that He can work this way, doesn't it also mean that this death on the cross that looked like a stunning defeat could be the very thing that redeems you? The very thing that restores your life? The very thing that makes you right with God? I say yes. And it would have stunned Peter's crowd. They would have been stunned by this. So here's the question. Does it stun you? Do we come to the empty tomb, the death of cross, and God working through all these things? And does it amaze us? He planned the death of His Son for us. For us. It's the story of the Gospel found in Jesus' death. Well, Peter goes on really quickly from Jesus' death to Jesus' resurrection. The story doesn't stop there. If it stopped there, which the disciples thought on that night that it probably did, we wouldn't be sitting here today, would we? And we would not be here today. As quickly as Peter states the fact that God accredited him with the miracles, God ordained Christ's death, he just as quickly says, God raised him up. God raised him up. Verse 23 says, God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it wasn't possible for him to be held by death. It's a great verse there, verse 23. I think it's the one we put on the cover of your, your worship folder today. He loosed the pangs of death. It's actually kind of graphic language there that Peter says that we don't quite get, but it's actually kind of graphic language. Uh, 
Peter's actually saying there, as impossible as it is for a pregnant woman now to hold inside a seriously, seriously now overdue baby in her tummy. (laughs) That's what he's saying. So it was just as impossible for that grave to hold Jesus. It's really graphic, striking imagery. And some of you that have been pregnant, you really, that's impossible. Yes. <laughs> or watched a, a, a wife get pregnant and have a child. It's impossible. That's what he's saying. That the grave was like a dam ready to burst with Jesus in it. It's like a, a wild horse ready to burst out of the corral like a bull in a pen is what he's saying. I'm coming out of this grave Do you believe that? And what does that mean for us? What does that mean for you? A couple thousand years later now, we're still sitting here celebrating this. It means that someday you will burst out of the grave too. Someday you will burst out of the grave too. Imagine what that's going to look like. No idea. (laughs) Think about that. Imagine what that's going to look like when we come bursting out of our graves with new real physical bodies now. It's not just some ethereal kind of thing. This is real flesh and blood substance Jesus is talking about, that Peter's talking about here. That's what it means. Jesus' resurrection means it's going to be as impossible for the grave to hold you as it was for Him. That's good news. That's what it means. It means that someday you will touch again the loved ones that you've lost that died in faith. That's what it means. That's good news. They will be resurrected too. It means that someday all sickness, all death, all cancer, all dementia, all fatigue, all flus and colds will be gone. Gone. That's what it means. It means that you can say with confidence right now, resurrect me, Jesus. And he will. That's what it means. It means no future condemnation, no future judgment for you even now. That's what it means. It means a lot, doesn't it? It means a lot. It all rests on that, that the women really went and saw an empty tomb. And it was only empty because Jesus burst out of it. There's no other explanation that works. Nothing that stands up. Nothing that would cause all 12 of those men to go and die scattered all around the world. What else? Maybe if they were together in one room, they could keep each other accountable. You better not tell. But scattered abroad with nobody there to support them, they were crucified upside down, burned and sawed in two for it? For a lie? No way. No way. They saw Him alive again. Face to face. It all rests on that. And Peter spends the majority of his sermon on that. And Peter wants to make sure, hey, because you might be thinking today, some scam, you know, lots of people make up stories, fake news. I want to make sure, I want to make sure that you know we didn't make this up. God's been planning it all along. So what does he do? He goes and quotes one of their most revered sources that they have. Do you know who it was? Who was the king? David. He goes and quotes David for them from Psalm 16. Look at verse 27 popping up here. David, these are David's words quoted by Peter now in the sermon. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. 
It's a weird verse, isn't it? It's kind of a strange verse. Peter says to them, well, I know that David died, our king, and you know that King David died. You know it too. His grave's still here, and you know that his body corrupted. So he acknowledges David as the prophet. A voice about a thousand years before Christ was ever resurrected, David wrote this. A thousand years. And Peter says, let me make sure you understand what's going on here. So he says in Acts 2, being therefore a prophet, David that is, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw, this is David now, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, the grave, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Peter wants him to be sure. Hey, our prophet, our King David, spoke about this a thousand years ago. He wasn't speaking about himself. And he says, you know, and, and we, we are all eyewitnesses, he says there at the end of that verse. Here's what he's saying. The prophets and the apostles all point to a resurrected Jesus. All of them. We all do, he says. It's like he's saying, look, we're pointing to the fact that this, this resurrection thing happened. David spoke about it a thousand years ago. How could he do that? We saw him. We were here. We saw him. And they're all pointing. Maybe you today were brought here by a, a trusted friend. Maybe you were brought here by a, a revered source like they had, King David. Somebody that you trust. They're doing this today for you. They're pointing you to Jesus. Do you trust that person? Maybe trust them at their word that the resurrection really happened too. They brought you here today, maybe. Maybe that's you. That he has, in fact, risen. Well, God accredits with the miracles. God ordains his death. God raises him up. And the final piece of the gospel story is found in his uh, exaltation. Jesus' exaltation. His raising up. It's the final act of Jesus' salvation. And by that I mean His ascension. His rising up to His place of honor and the throne of heaven. His exaltation. It's the final act of Jesus' salvation. We don't necessarily think of it as part of His salvation for us, but it is. It is actually. Look at verse 33 there. He says, being exalted at the right hand of God. Verse 33 of chapter 2 there. He's exalted at the right hand of God. It means now, this raised Jesus sits in the highest place of honor and he, he rules earth. He rules earth. Do you know Jesus told the disciples that it would be good for them, it'd be good for them if he were to go away. It'd be good. Can you imagine what they thought? It was all over. He was crucified. This thing is off the rails. He resurrects and comes back they see him face to face. Thomas wants to touch his body and see, and he's there, and he's got the hand, the marks of the nails even, where they would have nailed him in his wrists. Like, this is unbelievable. All right, guys, I'm out of here. <laughs> I'm going to leave. I need to leave. I need to go. We'll be all alone, Jesus. Wait a minute. We're set it. Let's do it. You're here. Set up the kingdom. Can you imagine what they thought? 
be good for me to go away. Peter connects to Pentecost because once he was exalted, verse 33 goes on to say that he received the Spirit from the Father, Jesus did, and now he was going to pour it out on the people like a torrential downpour of rain. The Holy Spirit now was going to come out upon the people as a downpour and really birth the church, God's people. And he transformed Peter by this. It was good for him to be exalted because it meant we could be now be spiritually born in a unique way. By the Spirit, as Jesus left, the Spirit was poured out. That's how it works. That's why it's good news. Poured out in a way that He hadn't been all the way through the Old Testament in a unique way, the Spirit. But it also means He's going to come back someday. And when He comes back, He'll come back in judgment. But, not for those who have received the promises. Let's take a look at them. The story of the Gospel promises that Peter points to these promises and doesn't want us to miss these promises. And I don't want you to miss these promises because when Jesus does come back, He's coming back differently the second time. Here here they are. The story of the Gospel promises forgiveness and the Spirit. Peter promises them forgiveness. And the very same Spirit that had just been poured out on the apostles as they came out uh, talking in, in strange tongues and, and the fire resting on their head. You remember that Pentecost story? He promises them that same Spirit. And just to make sure that they knew they needed God's forgiveness, He reminds them one more time, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, that's Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. It's pretty bold. <laughs> I don't know if I could stand in front of those the accusers and crucifiers of Jesus and Remind them of it twice in the same sermon? (laughs) Twice? But what does Peter do? As much as he loves Jesus, as much as a soldier and a disciple of Christ might have said, let's get our revenge, they're all right here. Rather than run them out of here, call down fire from heaven, what does God do and what does Peter do there? He offers them forgiveness. The very ones who crucified him. Peter there offers them forgiveness and a new life, a fresh start in the Spirit. It's amazing. The disciples could have rounded them up right there. Hey, we got the majority of them. Let's fence them in. Let's go. Let's get them. That's grace and mercy and love, isn't it? That right there, the very ones that nailed the the nails were given a, a hand of forgiveness, an extended arm of love and mercy. It's this idea that we've talked about before, especially we went through the book of Ruth, that idea of covenant love, a love that's bigger than just you keep your end of the bargain, I'll keep mine, then we'll love each other. Much deeper love. It's a binding agreement type of love. We don't talk about that type of love very much in the church. We should because it's all over the Bible, but in the culture in general, we don't either. And, and, and that binding agreement type of love, and the only place it really still exists in our society is between a parent and a child. What do I mean by that? Well, the culture at large used to talk about covenant love, this kind of sticky sort of love um, in marriage. We used to talk about that even outside, just even in the culture in general even, a covenant in marriage, uh, even outside the church. But we still all know something of covenantal love, whether you've parented or grandparented or remember uh, being a child, whether you've had kids or not. You know the situation. 
was one of the worst disagreements maybe you ever had with your child, and it reached that boiling point. And I don't know if you remember that scene in the movie, The Christmas Story, where he's changing the tire and he says something in slow motion. You know, it was that kind of moment where your child turned to you and said, I hate you. Or something along those lines. That hurts, doesn't it? Maybe you said it to your parent yourself. It hurts. Now thank God for parental love that doesn't usually now, usually respond with, all right then, this relationship's over. Pack your bags, hit the road. (laughs) Usually. (laughs) Usually. More than likely, when we respond poorly, even as parents in those moments, we fire back something angry, don't we? Something harsh, some words to hurt our kids as well. But as a parent, that doesn't just hurt, that destroys them, doesn't it? It hurts when they say, I hate you. But what we say to them destroys them. It's so easy to destroy them with our words. But when we're handling it at our best as a parent in covenantal love, what do we do? We don't break off the relationship, do we? When they say, I hate you. We don't respond with equal harshness. What do we do? We absorb it. We just absorb it. We take on the harsh words. We take on the mistreatment. And we still love. That is what God is doing right here in that moment with those that hit the nails in His hands. And that is what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus absorbed it. He absorbed our, 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 our sin and God's wrath. Think of a sponge, right? Think of taking a sponge and, and dunking it into a bucket of water. And the bucket of water being God's wrath, and I know it's a poor metaphor, but the Christ's work being like that sponge, dunking in and absorbing that wrath, that's covenantal love. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He absorbed that wrath. And and, and it caused them, they would have thought, Peter would not have spoken this graciously to them, what it caused them to do. Look at verse 37 and 38. Now when they heard this, they they were cut to the heart, it says. Cut deep to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, well, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The story of the Gospel is full of gifts for the undeserving. Full of gifts for you and I full of gifts for those who crucified Jesus. It's overflowing with gifts. I love this picture, this quote. It's a picture of this covenantal love that was taking place right here. They'd murdered God's Son. Here's a gift. He was offering them His Spirit. They'd crucified the second person of the Trinity. He was offering them the third. That's the Spirit. They'd thrown God's Son out of the vineyard in the hope of inheriting the vineyard themselves. Now he was inviting them to receive God's Spirit, not just into their vineyard, but into their very hearts. That's that absorbing kind of love. We turn our back on Jesus, he offers us everything. He offers us his forgiveness and his spirit. Do you know what those two things are combined, those gifts? They're freedom. They're freedom. A new start, a fresh life, the gifts. I began with some questions today. 
You feel overwhelmed. You feel anxious. Fractured. Constantly needing to feel like prove your worth. You feel alone. Maybe even wrestling with a guilt of sin. You just know you're not right. You just know something is off about you. You just know you're not supposed to respond that way even when you do. You just know it. Remember this guy? Remember him? You ever feel like that? Knowing there's something larger than yourself that you just want to connect and attach to? If you don't feel like that today, there's always tomorrow. <laughs> the Gospel story, don't forget it on the, in that tomorrow. It offers forgiveness and freedom in these two gifts. Forgiveness, here's the first one. It means to enter into eternity with nothing hanging over your head. Nothing from your past, your present, or even the future screw-ups we're going to do. Not hanging over your head. No need to prove yourself. When Christ forgives you your sins, He has paid for them. It's absolutely freeing, isn't it? That you can know with certainty, with certainty, that eternity doesn't hang in the balance of some weighted scale of good and bad, which the majority of people look at their lives. They weigh out the good and bad. They go, I don't really know what's on the other side, but I feel like my good outweighs a little bit, my bad. You don't have to even think about that scale. You take Christ and you just plop it on the side, on your side, and it's yours. Forgiveness. But then the Spirit is the other gift. It means if you've trusted Christ and you've been given that Spirit, He's going to make you into something new. You're never going to stay the same. You're never going to stay right where you're at. Status quo does not exist for the Christian. He'll move you forward. Sometimes that moving hurts a little, doesn't it? But He gives us something new and gives us a new power to live for Him. And you put those two together and what could be more freeing than that? A clean slate, uh, a Christ's righteousness, and the power to move forward in life in a new way. What could be more encouraging than that? For each of us today, and if you've come to Christ already, see that freedom again today. But how about if you haven't? What if you're sitting here today and you haven't yet? The story of the Gospel requires something of you. It requires something of you. And Peter has an answer to these men, these women that asked on that day and he's got it for us too. Here's the answer. Here's the requirement. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. I've talked about this before, but when I get criticized, I usually, my default mode, maybe you can relate, is to respond like a defense lawyer. Like I was heading towards death row or standing in front of the Supreme Court. I can respond that way. These people in Peter's sermon were just accused of killing God's Son. He pleads with them, save yourselves from this crooked generation. And how do they respond? Humility. It's amazing. What other than a work of God in that moment, only a few weeks later, could cause the very people that nailed Christ to the cross to respond in humility when they were accused of killing God's Son? Tell us what to do, Peter. Well, then what should we do, Peter? What do we do? So what do you do? Peter says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ 
for the forgiveness in the Spirit. Which really is the same as saying repent and have faith. Baptism was always seen as a sign of an external reality of an internal faith that was there. Repent and have faith. Be baptized. Trusting Jesus for your forgiveness. That's what you do. That's what Peter told them to do. They could not have committed a more serious sin, right? He says, repent. Have faith. Join the community of God's people. If that's the desire of your heart today, maybe God is working in you. If that's the desire of your heart today, expressing it to God may look something like this. Heavenly Father, I want to be one who responds to you in repentance and faith. Help me humble, help me be humble enough to see my need of a savior. Help me trust that that Savior is Jesus Christ who died for my sins and rose again in victory for me. Help me turn from my sin realizing that my works, my good works, my deeds can never save me. Give me real genuine faith from Your Spirit and set me free. Give me an assurance that my resurrection's coming too. Save me now, Lord, and rescue or resurrect me in the future. You know, the words themselves aren't magic. Not magic words that you'll say. But if that is the sense and the feeling of, and the, of your heart today, it can be a way to express it today and receive Christ as your Savior. Gospel story. It's an amazing story, isn't it? We couldn't write it. Couldn't predict it. Well, David did, I guess. <laughs> By the power of God. It's found in those three events. His death. His resurrection, His exaltation. In in it are the promises of forgiveness and the Spirit. And they come to you and I by repentance and faith. One day He's coming back. Coming back with a real body because He was resurrected. To give us new bodies too. Make sure you're resurrected to life. Not judgment. Hear those words today. To life, not judgment. Through repentance and faith. Let's pray. Lord, what a wonderful celebratory day we have here. Jesus Christ, You have risen. You have defeated the grave, death and sin. Where's Your sting? For us who've trusted You, Christ, there is no sting coming. Death ushers us into your presence immediately. There's no sting in that. We can look that in the face without fear. But, O oh Lord, we want to live in the here and now with whatever time you have for us, for that message, for the gospel, for the fact that we don't just have some opinion or uh, uh, you know, a funny way of looking at this Word of God, the Bible. We're proclaiming something that actually happened. Great news. And so, Lord, continue to give us fresh eyes today to live out of repentance and faith and see again what is offered to us, the gifts of Jesus Christ, the mercy for those who had nailed the hands and feet immediately offered, is offered to us today too. And really, it was our sin that put him there as well. We really represented in that crowd that stood before Peter. So, Christ, may we respond with a joy 
a hope as we sing together. You have risen. You have risen indeed. It's in your name we pray. Amen.